Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. You're listening to the Co-Main Event Podcast. And now your hosts, Ben Folks and Chad Dundas. That's right. You're listening to another episode of the Co-Main Event Mixed Martial Arts Podcast. I'm Chad Dundas. That's Ben Folks. We're both longtime MMA journalists. And for the last nine years, we've been meeting here every single week to break down all the action in the wild, weird, and occasionally wonderful world of mixed martial arts. Ben, we got an all-questions-considered episode of the CME this week after a weekend where the UFC and Bellator both had events. The UFC's event was a little bit nondescript, a little bit uh, maybe underwhelming as it played out. Uh, the Bellator event was was fine, but it felt like some Bellator stuff. And so we didn't necessarily want to focus the entire show uh, on either of those things entirely, but we'll talk a little bit about that stuff. We got Aspen Ladd versus Norma Dumont. We got um, Corey Anderson's victory over Ryan Bader and, of course, Vadim Nemkov, both those guys uh, moving on to the Bellator light heavyweight Grand Prix Finals. And uh, Conor McGregor punched a DJ over there <laughs> in Rome. God, it's amazing how that just rolled off the tongue, isn't it? Yeah. Conor McGregor punched a DJ. Like, you could almost, if I didn't know anything about it, you could say it, and I would just roll right with it. Mm-hmm. Like, I would just assume that that was correct. Sure, that that's I normal just... Conor McGregor news right there. Man, let me tell you, it was a little bit of a ride going and checking out that DJ's Twitter page. Mm. Because at first, I was like, you know... When you hear Conor McGregor has punched a famous Italian DJ, and you go like, "Well, okay," like he 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 is on vacation, so that does sound like a thing that Conor McGregor does on vacation. And then when I hear that DJ's name is Francesco Facinetti, I'm like, "Is somebody fucking with me?" You is know, his, is his DJ name Frankie Fats? Because that's just the one that comes to me right off the top of my head. Um, you go and you check out his Twitter page, and I granted. Not everything we see on social media gives us a, a full picture of a person's life. Also, it's all in Italian. I don't speak Italian. But he just comes across as kind of a delightful human being. Jed, here he is, sitting there on the streets, uh, holding up a pizza pie. Okay. And uh, and it just says, I am a la pizza. Heart emoji, pizza emoji. Like Italian for like, yeah, I love pizza. And then you look at the picture and you're like, he does look like he loves pizza. You want to punch that guy? The guy's trying to, he's, he's living his life, man, enjoying his pizza pie. You going to go up there? You going to swing up that guy? Come on, man. Fuck is that? An Italian DJ who's on his social media talking about how he loves pizza. Are we sure that this is even a real person or is this some, some kind of like viral marketing campaign for Frankie Fats Pizza? Are we going to find out later that this whole thing is a work? we're just trying to sell slices? I mean, all I can tell from his Twitter is that he loves pizza and his children. 
And God, who among us can't identify with that? I mean, those, those two loves go together pretty well, honestly, for most most families. Yeah. So, I, I don't know, man. I don't know. We got to roll up on this Italian DJ. Just that's just another, like, uh, a moment from the man's life that feels like it was just auto-generated by a bot that had been forced to read enough Conor McGregor TMZ stories. <laughs> we sh- that's what we should do. We should build a bot yeah, to we'd just have create to get a- future stories. We'll just write them up and then like just set them so that like when the events happen, they automatically trigger and just publish. That's actually not a terrible idea. And we will outsource it to all the other MMA sites. This is how we'll, this is how we'll get rich, Chad. We'll be like this, this Silicon Valley shit. Like we'll be like Pied Piper, whatever. Like coming up with this like algorithm that just turns out Conor McGregor stories. Well, we're going to have to get a bot to do it because I'm pretty sure forcing an actual human being to read all of the Conor McGregor related TMZ stories would be against some kind of labor law. Like yeah. there's, there's gotta be some federal protections. Against I'm pretty that. sure Geneva convention covers that one. I'm pretty sure. So yeah, let's, let's see if we can make that happen. Conor McGregor trouble bot. <laughs> trouble bot TM. That one's <laughs> trademarked. Don't you guys even think about infringing on that shit. Proprietary information of the co-main event podcast, Conor McGregor trouble bot. Anyway, you guys are listening to the uh, proper right now, the co-main event podcast proper. This show drops every Monday for free in your timelines and your podcast libraries. And if you think we're having fun right now, you absolutely need to check out what's going on over at patreon.com slash co-main event. Ben Folks and I there are there all week party rocking with three additional podcasts. We got the Wednesday live chat. We got Thursday doing the damn thing, the brand new addition to the library and Friday, the power hour. Uh, if you don't get your MMA fix from this free show, check us out over there. We got three handy tiers of patronage available. Get in, join the team, join the party. We have fun over there. One thing I wanted to make sure we brought up, Ben, before we get to the uh, to the all questions considered portion of today's entertainment. Longtime listener of the show, known associate, you might say. Okay. Josh K. went out last week. And without telling us this was going to happen, this dude got himself a Dundasso tattoo on his body, which when you start a comedy podcast with your, with your buddy nine years ago, just for shits and grins and giggles and the lulls, you never think at some point somebody is going to get some of that show's iconography tattooed on their body, their actual no. body for life. You don't, you don't expect that. So we got to send a shout out to Josh for, for being down since day one, a good dude. Uh, and if you want to see a picture of the Dundasso tattoo, well, you can just roll over to comainevent.com where we got blogs going up every day. Now Ben's got one today about Conor McGregor. I've got one about the UFC just royally screwing things up with Francis and Gano. You can go read those comainevent.com. You can also see the picture of Josh's tattoo, which is pretty awesome. Pretty mind-blowing that that happened. Uh, in any case, we're moving on this week. We got all questions considered. We got. I see no reason to continue to beat around the bush here. Let's get to this stuff. The first one uh, this week came into long time from longtime listener Brandon Boyd, who uh, I edited it down a little bit because he, he talked about some stuff we're going to get from a, from a different question here. But he, he basically says... Aspen Ladd gave a fairly uninspired performance in her loss at UFC Fight Night 40. When will the UFC stop 
trying to make Aspen Lad a thing. Uh, ben, you could argue this puts Aspen Lad in a tough spot because she's had some trouble here and there making 135. She moves up to 145 on short notice in a week or so after uh, she had had the, the weight cut mishap that had had her previous fight canceled. You and I talked uh, at great length about how we understood that this was a good opportunity for Asp- Aspen Lad and why she would take it. Uh, but then she goes out there and has this kind of performance against Norma Dumont. Is she uh, stuck between a rock and a hard place at this point? Is she a fighter without a home? Because 135 doesn't seem like the greatest place for her. And now she has a sort of a uh, a tepid performance in this loss at 145. What, oh, oh, what is Aspen Ladd to do here, Ben? Yeah. Okay, first, before I say the other things I'm going to say, I oh, want no. to start... This is starting like an all-due-respect type introduction. No. This is the, this is going to be the opposite. Because, first of all, the first thing I want to say is that Aspen Ladd is 26. Okay, she's got a lot of time. She does. I think we talk sometimes about how some this sport can often be too quick to just brand a person one thing, slot them into one kind of space, and say, we have decided this is who you are, and that's it. We are not willing to change our minds. And then somebody, you know, five years later turns into a really good fighter and maybe even a champion and we're going oh can you believe this this career comeback well maybe we shouldn't have judged them when they were still so young in their career and had a lot of learning left to do like maybe experience counts for something especially in a sport like this where it's not exactly like you go through high school mma and then college mma and then jump to the pros of mma like a lot of people you know some don't even really do amateurs Aspen Ladd, 26 years old, she has been sort of, you know, in the MMA public eye for pretty much the entirety of her pro career. I mean, she she started out as a pro in Invicta, uh, been in the UFC since 2017, but still, this was her 11th pro fight. Okay. You know? so, yes, she's 9-2 and two overall, she's 26 years old, she's a youngster yeah, in, in this game. started this when she was a teenager. However, so, however, at this juncture, sir, would you not concede that Aspen Ladd is in at kind of a dangerous crossroads right now. She's in a tough spot. And you're right to point out that some of it, like the weight puts her in a difficult spot because if you have trouble making 135 kind of consistently, and she has had that trouble, some scary weigh-ins, some stuff where you want, like you go, is this even the weight class you're supposed to be at? Then she goes up to 145 on short notice, Looks healthy and happy on the scales for a change. Makes 145 easily, but then gets in the cage and seems physically outmatched. Is basically held at distance by just a a jab and a cross for five rounds. It can't really get closer than that. And then when she can get closer than that, doesn't have the, the strength or the takedown ability to get the fight to the floor where she wants it. And so ends up just being sort of stymied there and stalemated there. And so... You do wonder, is that like just a physical problem? If you're too big for 135, but not big enough for 145. And also, even if you were big enough for 145, it's kind of a weight class that doesn't exist in yeah. the UFC. Or that yeah. exists kind of hypothetically in the UFC. So those are legitimate issues that she's facing. I think, though, also it highlights the problem with the UFC kind of settling on you very early on is like, this is a person we will push. We think that this person has some real potential just in terms of like star making ability or somebody we can work with for one reason or another. 
And I do think that we've seen this happen before. Brandon Boyd's kind of getting at it. When fans get the sense the UFC would like this person to be a thing. Yeah. They judge them by a different criteria. And that's not always uh, to that fighter's benefit. Like Sage Northcutt is somebody, again, like who where that, that exact thing where the UFC very clearly wanted Sage Northcutt to be a thing and was paying him more than they would pay other people who are at that same level. So other fighters are looking at him being like, okay, is this guy a thing? Can I can I become a thing by beating this guy? And the next thing you know, he gets into a, a lot of fights that he's not really ready for and is facing a level of scrutiny that his actual fighting ability and experience does not prepare him for. I think you can sometimes do a young fighter a disservice that way. Yeah. Uh, you've spoken with Aspen Ladd before. You've interviewed Aspen Ladd, correct? Like, she seems like yes. kind of a delightful person. Is it, sounds like you are, you know, despite some of your caveats, still perfectly willing to be Aspen Ladd's advocate. Like, you, you're the Paul Heyman to her Brock Lesnar right now. Well, I don't know if I would go that far. Um, I think we're going to end up talking a little more uh, about the coaching uh, yeah. situation for Aspen Ladd. I think that's going to come up here. Yeah, I'm doing and, that. Now. I'm going there next. Okay. All right. Well, then I'll, I'll I'll get out the way. I'll clear the lane, let you go there. Before we do it, though, I wanted to mention one thing. This, I believe, if I'm not mistaken, three out of the last four UFC fight night cards, the UFC has declined to name a fight of the night. They have not given out a fight of the night bonus. They have given out the bonuses. They go ahead and they do four performance of the night bonuses when they don't right. do that, which is... Uh, I mean, some might say that's nice. Some might say that's the very least that they could do, but, uh, th- I don't know, man. Like that's, it seems like we are either in a real dry spell right now or all of the stuff that we routinely talk about on this show, hashtag just some fights era oversaturation, spreading these things too thin, you know, marking out, uh, dates on the calendar and then just having to fill them no matter who can show up. Some of that stuff feels like it's, it has come to fruition over the last month or so. Either that or we are just in kind of like a wacky dry spell. Because uh, I do not know that I recall a stretch of fight nights or events at all where you would say 75% of them, and obviously small sample size here, but three out of the last four UFC fight nights, no fight of the night named at all. Yeah, and it does kind of undercut the usual claim of, hey, it's these events where people say it sucks and that there's no good fights on it that end up being the best ones. And then when you have three out of four of them where you can't even name a fight of the night, and the the fourth one, the one where they could name a fight of the night, it was Marina Rodriguez versus Mackenzie Dern, right? So, like, you know, a, a decent fight, not exactly like anybody, it's not going to make anybody's fight of the year list, I'm guessing, and so, is that the UFC admitting, mm, there weren't any good fights on this one? Turns out, nope, no good fights. Yeah, I mean, it's not a compliment, right? <laughs> All right, we're going to go here. This one, a longtime listener, frequent emailer, Shad Rap writes in. He says, quick story. I oh, did good. some rowing in college, and I have my had my share of being yelled at by coaches and the people in the front of the boat. Never abusive, and there is definitely a line, which I'm sure has been crossed in other situations, but aggressively motivating, not unlike Aspen Ladd's coach. Now, I certainly do not want to compare myself to a UFC fighter, and that's not my intention. I saw some critiques of Aspen Ladd's coaching style between rounds of her fight, and I am a bit surprised at the reaction. Uh, I kind of assumed that that style of coaching might be more prevalent in MMA, but Misha Tate's reaction and others has me second guessing that. I don't think that style of coaching is rare in other sports. Am I off base here? Was that a weird anomaly and abusive coaching? Was it what Aspen Ladd needed but didn't follow through on in that situation? Or 
Uh, is it, as one commentator mentioned, a result of Aspen Ladd and her coach's relationship, which we do not fully understand? I grant that there is some history between Misha Tate and Aspen Ladd as well, which could contribute to her specific reaction. I am honestly not sure how I think of that coaching style, and I really hope I'm not defending an abusive coaching style. I'm just curious what others think. Yeah, well, I don't know if we want to go just go on Misha Tate's reaction because, as has been noted here, there's some history there, and part of that history was Misha Tate taking shots at Aspen Ladd, and then Jim West, Aspen Ladd's coach, and last time I, I checked, boyfriend, I don't know if they're still in a relationship, I assume they are, um, he was the one to really fire back at Misha Tate pretty vigorously. So Called her a coward. You could see why Misha Tate would maybe not miss an opportunity <laughs> to to criticize his coaching in that situation, but... She's definitely not the only one who who pointed out that th- there was some some stuff going on. At the same time, though, wasn't there stuff earlier in the fight? You know, they're talking about the time you know where she fights Yana Kunitskaya, and he gets in her face between rounds, and then she goes out there and finishes Yana Kunitskaya, and it was like, oh yeah, like he he knew what to say to fire her up. She went out there and she finished it, and then when he goes out there and he gets in her face between rounds here. Uh, and she doesn't come back and get the finish, then everybody's going like, what the hell are you doing? Yeah. I mean, I would say in MMA, there is a range of coaching styles, a re- like a really broad range, more so I think probably than in other sports. And because I too, you know, I came to like combat sports, like as a recreational participant from more established sports. And like when you're playing like high school and college football, they will say some terrible fucking shit to you, man. Like, they will treat you awfully. Like, sitting there watching those films, like, Saturday morning after a high school football game, they, especially when they're doing, like, teenage kids, you, it's only later when you, you get some distance on it, you think back and you be like, you guys are assholes, man. Like, you guys are just needless assholes to a bunch of teenage kids who probably needed you to pump them up more than they need you to just be in there tearing them down every single week. That probably didn't help anybody. What the hell is wrong with you? And then you get into, like, a jujitsu gym or a wrestling gym or a boxing gym or something, And a lot of it, especially because they want you to keep coming back and paying your gym dues, the coaching tends to be a little bit more positive and supportive and like building you up. And yet then you get into these situations where if you're the coach and everybody knows like you're my fighter, I need you to win for like reputation. I get more money if you win because, you know, you double your money and then I'm getting a percentage of your purse maybe. If I feel like I have a lot on the line here in so many ways and I feel like you are fucking it up, people get frustrated. And I think it's also always a lot easier to be the one outside the cage being like, hey, we agreed we were going to do these things. You're not doing these things. Why aren't you doing these things? Well, maybe you're not doing them because the other person's punching you in the fucking face, man. Yeah. Like, it's a lot harder than it looks once you get in there and you're actually doing it. The other person has some things they're trying to do, too. And maybe they're just better than you or maybe you're just not having a great night. I mean, I would say we don't always know what a fighter needs. And the the coach should have a better idea of like, what do they respond to? What do they need in certain times? What kind of coach do they need you to be in the corner? But you also need to be the kind of coach who can tailor your approach to that and not just go in there with your own frustrations and and just vent them out in a way that is not going to be helpful or useful. Yeah. Like, I think that's the difference. And so it's not always easy from the outside to tell which is which. I think that's the tricky part. 
Yeah, I mean, I guess two things. And one thing you, you kind of already mentioned, but it seems to me like this kind of coaching is, in a way, it's the fake punt in American football. It's the fake field goal, man. It's like if you go out there on fourth and two and you call this fake punt and it works, you're a goddamn genius and everybody loves you and they're going to put you on their shoulders and throw you up in the air after the game is over. If you call the fake punt on fourth and two and it hits the punter in the face and he drops it and the other team scoops it up and runs it in for a touchdown, then you're a fucking idiot. Yeah. Uh, and it's, it's kind of the same shit with this. Like, it's like if you're going to yell at Aspen Ladd on national television or ESPN plus like this, uh, if she goes out and wins, you were the spark. You were the, the, the catalyst for that victory. And if she doesn't win, then there's probably going to be a lot more scrutiny. Number two, like we see such a wide array of personalities, both between fighters and coaches, and also relationships between fighters and coaches. And it's kind of up to the coach, as you said, to know what motivates that fighter. And we have seen it, we have seen it play out time and time again. Just like the, the the probably the primary example that I think of is like the Jackson Winklejohn coaching staff and all of the different personalities that they have had to juggle over the years and how you get something different from Greg Jackson than you get from from Mike Winklejohn. And and like frankly, they would they would coach George St. Pierre in the corner where it's George, I don't want to hear about your groin right now. Uh they would coach him differently than they would coach Diego Sanchez. And as we've yeah. talked about on this show before, Diego Sanchez would often have kind of like a hype man coach who would come in. And sometimes it was like his high school wrestling coach. And that guy's main job in the Diego Sanchez camp was to like be the asshole who fired up Diego Sanchez and made him work super hard and like carry his buddy up the gym bleacher stairs a hundred times. And then like, you know, Greg and Mike were doing the finer points of what we were actually going to do in the MMA fight. So like, especially in mixed martial arts, where not only like the action is so diverse and you have all these different skills and personalities, but just in sort of like this weird wild west sport that we have, it kind of takes all kinds. And it's up to, I think, the coach and the athlete to know what the right motivating thing is. And since we don't fully know, I'm kind of on board with with letting it ride since we're not totally sure, unless you see something that's just obviously out of line. Uh, yeah. I mean, I do think that it, it, it's an added level of difficulty and weirdness. I think when you also have a relationship, like a romantic relationship outside of it, but yet that is shockingly common in MMA. And I always wonder how people do it where like female fighters often are dating like their coach or, you know, like another fighter who is in their corner or something. And it, it all, it seems so hard to me. And I remember talking to like when Misha Tate and Brian Caraway were in a relationship and for a long time, Brian Caraway was her coach. And then they went to extreme couture and Robert Fallis took over as her coach. And I remember him talking to the three of them kind of about how they, they navigated that and why they decided to have Robert Fallis sort of take over as head coach. And he was just saying how, I think his analogy was that, you know, you are managing this relationship between you, you know, at home and all other times. And then you come into the gym and that relationship changes a little bit. And then you go home, but you don't necessarily switch immediately back to your normal relationship. And he was saying, like, you know, you could stand there and hold a cup of water and it's not very difficult. But if you have to hold it all day, it's going to get heavy. And that's kind of what you guys are doing here is like you're, you're putting yourself in a situation where you you have this relationship at, at work and then you have this relationship at home and like there's no breaks from it. And it's, it's a lot to carry around for you. And I could also see like when 
it's one thing if it's like if your coach coming in there between rounds and saying, what are you doing? You're like, what the hell is wrong with you? What are you doing? And that's that's not a good feeling. You know, you're disappointing them. You're, you're letting that person down. If that coach is also your boyfriend coming in there and saying, like, what are you doing? I'm sure it probably adds something else. Like, I, I don't know how people do it as often as they do it and navigate it for as long as they do because it seems really, really difficult and stressful. All right, we got a couple of questions here about Andre Arlovsky and Jim Miller. This one from Alex Penny, who writes, let's tip our hats, pull up the rocking chairs, and get out the soft blankets. For Andre Arlovsky and Jim Miller, these OGs put on their work boots and got the job done this weekend. Now we should let these dudes relax in a quiet room for the next little bit while they sip some fine whiskey. They deserve it. Ben, if I was going to say there's anything out here that salvages UFC Fight Night 195, a.k.a. UFC Vegas 40, ESPN on plus 53, UFC Fight Night Lad versus Dumont. Uh, it is the performances of the 38-year-old Jim Miller and the 42-year-old Andre Arlovsky, men of a certain age, men that we can relate to in some way, because if nothing else, they are close to our own ages. And two guys in Arlovsky and Jim Miller who have both lived seemingly many lives in this sport. And it is like a legitimately feel-good moment to see these dudes come out there uh, and, and get their wins. Jim Miller also picks up a performance of the night bonus uh, for his second round KO of Eric Gonzalez. Uh, this, this, this was, well, I'm going to admit, for the old, the old heads out there, it's heartwarming to see Andre Arlovsky and Jim Miller get these wins. Yeah, I mean, I really thought I was going to cash my old dog's parlay here. Ryan Bader is the only thing that stood between me Cashing the old dogs parlay, or maybe I mean, Corey Anderson is the I mean, thing that stood between. That, let's let's be honest though, that was a that was a dumb one. That was that was <laughs> that was a bad pick. Even as you were saying it, I was like, oh wow, okay, okay. You you got to have the third one, the underdog to add that uh, that parlay some juice. I mean, hey but, man, I had Car- Carlos Felipe by decision over here, so I'm not the you're not the only one that the old men fucked around and and took money out of my pocket, food out of my children's mouths. The Jim Miller one really did. Uh, make me happy to see, especially because, you know, we're talking about just how long he's been at it. I saw, I think MMA junkie uh, highlighting, maybe Mike Bond highlighting our guy, Mike bad to the bone, uh, highlighting how Jim Miller has never missed weight for a fight, which considering how many goddamn fights he's been in, you're just like, that guy's a professional. Plus he did it for years with Lyme disease with like undiagnosed Lyme disease that yeah. he could barely train through and yet was still fighting a couple times a year. And to see him go out there, you know, this this young guy's getting after him kind of early on, and then he starts finding a home for that left hand, and pretty soon, you know, it's lights out. Yeah, how can you not feel kind of good about that? So, see, Andrei Arlovsky seems like he could show up, you know, win one and lose one from now until he's ready to collect Social Security. You know, like as long as you were willing to let him. Seems like he could do that. I believe I saw Jim Miller was on the MMA hour today and maybe they were talking about how he had only pulled out of one fight during his entire UFC career, That's which amazing. is, which is pretty amazing when you, when you think of it. All right, I'm going to shoot through these next. Uh, we got one here that focuses on Jim Miller and one that focuses on Andre Arlovsky. This one okay. uh, from Ryan Busatil, our guy over there on Patreon. He writes, Hey, not only did Jim Miller break Donald Cerrone's record for most UFC fights with number 38 on Saturday night, but he also scored UFC win number 22. That ties Miller with Damian Maya for second place behind Cerrone's 23 wins. Looking on both of those lists, Miller is the only one in the top 10 of both that has never received a title shot. He won seven in a row 
and nine of his first 10 UFC fights, including a win over current champ Chucky Olives in 2010, which Oliveira avenged in 2018, that probably would have been the time for Miller to get a crack at that belt. But the title was tied up between Frankie Edgar, Gray Maynard, and Benson Henderson during those years. Miller's gone 13, 14, and 1 since then. Uh, is Miller a victim of being in the most competitive division in the UFC his entire career? Bisping got a title shot, albeit on short notice with less wins in the middleweight division. And that, that wasn't as stacked at the time. What say you? Yeah. I mean, I think that definitely being in a more crowded division has a lot to do with it. I think also some of it is just like timing and opportunity and, as much as I love Jim Miller and love watching him hit work and love watching him fight, I I do think that when you're in one of these more talent-rich divisions, it's easy for people to forget about you between fights. And easy then for them to only remember you when you pop back up and they go, oh yeah, Jim Miller. I remember him now. Like if you're not one of those like Justin Gaethje kind of guys out there who... It, Maybe it's the highlights or maybe it's the attitude or something that people really latch on to and they, they get excited about seeing you. Jim Miller is a guy who just it's too easy for him to blend in with the pack at, at a division like lightweight. I think that's got to be part of it. And maybe some of it is that your wins just didn't come at the right time or you, were, you weren't available to, to jump on like an opportunity at the right time. I don't know. Yeah. Uh, yeah, man, it's so tough to be one of these 155 pounders. Like if Jim Miller had been a heavyweight, he probably would have had six shots at the title. Oh right yeah. Now. But here he is, uh, you know, without one, just because that's, that's statistically speaking where most of the talent is like, there's more talent there than anywhere else. All right. Here's this one from Peter Sterling. Uh, who writes, did you hear them casually mention on the broadcast that Andre Arlovsky plays hockey a few times a week in Florida? I did. Yeah. Can you guys imagine turning up for some rec league hockey down in Coconut Creek and seeing Arlovsky across from you. I can only imagine the kind of intimidating figure he cuts on skates. Discuss? I mean, ain't nobody fighting, right? Like, not a lot of fights, I don't think, in the rec league anyway, but you look, you you get there to the rink and you see Arlovsky across the line from you. I don't think the first thing you think is drop the gloves. Let's go. <laughs> yeah, I mean... Big dude with a big bushy beard, and if you get close enough, you can see how fucked up his nose is. Yeah, you probably wouldn't even have to know that Andre, who Andre Arlovsky was. You could just see him. Just take a look at him and be like, okay, this motherfucker might work in a meatpacking plant somewhere, but I want no part of this. Do you think... I get a, a defenseman vibe from Andre Arlovsky. I, I mean, he doesn't look like the most fleet of foot guy. I'll say that guy probably skate a hundred times faster than you or me, but like, yeah, he's, he's got more of a brick wall look to him. I think than like a guy who's going to slash down the ice and take a big slap shot from 30 feet away. I feel like, you know, big guy, long reach with the stick, you know, long legs can really like make up some distance with just a few strides. And he's probably one of those guys that, you know, if he can skate backwards at all, he probably just takes up a huge portion of the zone. You're trying, you're getting in there. You're you're trying to pick how you're going to get around this guy, and it feels like he could just extend his stick with his long ass arm in either direction and touch the boards on both sides. There's nowhere for you to go. Yeah, I bet he just makes the the available ice seem a lot smaller when he's out there. Yeah, remember when we watched that uh, that movie Goon? That was ba- you know based on a true story, but like kind of harkens back to another era of hockey where you could basically get a job in a fairly, uh, you know, high level hockey team, whether it be like minor leagues or, or the NHL, even just from being a good fighter, 
uh, do we need to make sure that no NHL GMs ever find out that Don Rarlovsky can skate? Because I got a feeling he'd be pretty good. He might be pretty good as an enforcer. Man, somebody wants to uh, really jump up in my esteem as uh, among my favorite NHL teams. Sign in Andre Olowski to to be your enforcer is, is kind of a good way to do it. I hate to admit that, but man, I'd be excited about it. All right. This next question comes to us from Aurelian Smith Jr., who, as everybody knows, is Jake the Snake Roberts. <laughs> He writes, brothers, <laughs> at what point is the UFC going to get sick of McGregor's antics? This man is out here punching 90 year olds and now a random Italian DJ. What did Pauly D ever do to him? I know he's a straw. I know he's a draw. Sorry, but he lost three out of his last four fights and is losing fans left and right. Will Uncle Dana eventually do something or can we just expect little Connie Mac to keep getting away with this shit? Uh, well, come we all, on. We all know the UFC the already pretty clearly indicated that they do not want to do anything. Yeah, we all know the answer to this, right? Especially because if you were going to put your foot down and do something, don't you think that point would have come already? Like, remember when he threw the hand truck through the goddamn bus window? Yeah, I, oh, I remember it. We acted like we were outraged for all of 15 minutes. Dana, didn't Dana White call it the most disgusting thing he had ever seen in a lifetime of fight promotion? He's sitting there, uh, steam shooting out of his ears in the back room there with Brett Okamoto. And Brett's like, uh, you, you still want to be in business with Conor McGregor? And Dana White's like, would you? Would you want to be in business with Conor McGregor? And you fast forward like six months and we got that thing edited into a slick hype video for his yep. fight against Habib Nurmagomedov. The hand truck going through the window of the bus turns out to be the biggest selling fight in UFC history. Right. And that was a thing that had like a real impact on the people around them. I mean, like several of the people who are in that bus at the time suffered really negative consequences as a result of being there when Conor McGregor's throwing that shit. You know, glasses going into people's eyes, people get their fights canceled. Uh, you know, Rose Namajuna seems like she was shooken up by it by, yeah. for a long time. I believe uh, Reed Harris had to go to the hospital. I think he broke his finger somehow in that thing. Well, Michael Chiesa filed a damn lawsuit, man. You and, think Michael and, Chiesa is a frivolous lawsuit guy? I doubt it. <laughs> I doubt it very much. Well, and see, that seems like what's going to happen here, right? Is the guy's already saying he's going to sue Conor McGregor. And so you get the sense that McGregor's just like, oh, all right, like I'll write another check and that'll be the end of it. Like he has not suffered any consequences in any real meaningful lasting way for any of this shit. Even the stuff where he's punched the old man in the pub, first of all, the, he goes on ESPN and talks about how, you know, like he, how sorry he is and, and all that only once we've all seen the video of, of him actually doing it and seeing just how the guy really was just completely minding his own fucking business. And Conor McGregor reaches over there and takes a poke at him. Uh, and then, as you mentioned, took it well, took yeah. it like it was nothing. Um, and then ends up buying the pub, you know, that, so it's like. How how can you say like, he, that he suffered any real consequences from that? He didn't. You know, you write a check, you got plenty of money, you move on to the next assault charge. Even now, just the hearing that Conor McGregor is on vacation in your region should worry you. Yeah, you should go on vacation somewhere else <laughs> yes. to hear that shit. You go on vacation to Ireland, you do a, a, a swap <laughs> with him. Uh-huh. Crisscross. Yeah. You know? Uh it's, but it's so, 
just routine at this point. And you could tell how how hard the UFC is going to try to avoid ever having to do anything about it in that when Dana White was just asked like a month ago about him throwing a drink at Machine Gun Kelly at the, the Video Music Awards on the red carpet, and Dana White's response is, I got 700 lunatics under contract here, for which... Can you imagine being one of the fighters who really is just like a good person minding yeah. your own business, mm-hmm. fucking coaching kids wrestling, shit like that, you know, and you look up, you look up from your newspaper uh, in between, you know, you're working out at the gym and your shift at Walgreens before you go volunteer with local youths and hear, oh, they're all a bunch of lunatics. Oh, really? Just because you need to cover for one guy? Like, so... They, we're all fucking savages just so that we can excuse this one guy's habitual bad behavior and never have to confront doing anything about it. Yeah. And it's just like the shit that we would say with John Jones, where it's like, you got a bunch of enablers around you. Nobody ever wants to do anything to stop the gravy train. And if that means letting you act a fool every so often, then so be it. Yeah. Nobody wants to do anything about it. Yeah, I mean, Conor McGregor has already been accused of multiple sexual assaults by multiple women, which just statistically speaking is tough to imagine that both of those or all of those would be hoaxes, that they would be false allegations. Uh, Plus they would be like the one shit he's been accused of that he didn't do. Everything else he gets accused of, there's like usually video evidence that he did it. So there's like, we've got that evidence to suggest that Conor McGregor has already committed pretty significant crimes. But just like the rate of his recidivism here leads me to think like, this is a dude who could, he's perfectly capable of one of these times committing an actual crime that lands him behind the, behind bars in the, in an, in the Italian sneezer somewhere that like, we got to start trying to extradite the guy or whatever. Uh, like that's It kind of seems how this ends to me, frankly, that Conor McGregor is just going to kind of keep fucking up. If up to and including the point where somebody was like, all right, man, well, you have to go to jail now. Yeah. And I mean, it it just seems like that is if that's not going to be the the point that this escalates to what's going to be the thing that stops it. Yeah. Because don't you think that we've already had enough of these that if you were going to have a like, well, I got to get my shit together kind of moment, you would have had it already. Plus. There's nothing actually happening to you that would make that would force you to get your shit together. It would have just have to be a thing that you decided because you you've decided that you're done being this asshole. And it it also the idea of like okay, he is he is he losing fans doing this stuff? Is it does the UFC's calculation change if people are not that into Conor McGregor as a result of all this shit that he is doing? I don't know, man, but it does seem like it is becoming way more of a fucking joke. Yeah. Then, it, like when you were the superstar athlete, like a a world champion fighter, and you were off like misbehaving, doing some of this stuff, and people go, "Oh man, he's just like an Irish Mike Tyson or something," you know, like maybe it's easier for people just to think like, "Oh, you know, crazy but yet elite athlete." When you're getting your ass kicked over and over again, and the only punches you can land are on an Italian DJ who doesn't see it coming because he has no reason to think that you guys are even in a conflict. Because according to his wife, what happened was he said, do you want to go to another party? You said, okay. And then the guy punched you. Like, then you look kind of pathetic, man. You look like you're you're the only punches you can land are in the nightclub. Yeah. 
I do wonder if the only thing that Conor McGregor really has going for him is that he continues to sell pay-per-views, how long that can continue. Because as I've said before on this show, if you are one of this mythical uh, army of mainstream fans that allegedly found out about Conor McGregor when he fought Floyd Mayweather, like the only things that you have seen this guy do in the cage are lose to Habib in fairly one-sided and embarrassing fashion, beat old man Donald Cerrone in 40 seconds, and then lose two fights, both by stoppage, pretty quick fights, I'll say also, against Dustin Poirier. And on top of that, every time you turn around, the guy is in the news for stomping on someone's cell phone outside the Fontainebleau Hotel or punching a DJ who doesn't see it coming or socking an old man in a bar because he doesn't want to take a shot of your shitty whiskey. Like how, how long are the, are people going to keep buying those pay-per-views, man? Like at some point you got to be like, well, this guy never even wins one of these things. That's, it's just crazy to me that, that like he's still a draw. And I wonder how long that can continue if, if this is the state of affairs. Yeah. But then, you know, you mentioned the stomp it on the cell phone outside the Fontainebleau. Uh, he just got the key to the city of Miami. Okay. The same yeah. city where he did that. That was yeah. in like 2019 where he stomped on the dude's phone and stole his phone, got arrested. And like two years later, he's getting the key to the city of Miami for fuck who knows why. Yeah. I guess it also bears mentioning that I read that the reason he was even in Rome was to have his child baptized at the Vatican. So that's so that'll that'll be a fun story to tell the kid, right? <laughs> Ah, next question this week comes to us from Daring Darren Dinkins. Got to be careful with that one. It's a bit of a tongue twister. (laughs) He writes, Scotty Cox says the winner of the Bellator Light Heavyweight Grand Prix will be the best 205 pounder on the planet, period. He actually said the period part, in case anybody is wondering. At first, I laughed at the idea, thinking it was just some more Bellator bullshit. But then I started to think, is two cold Cokes actually onto something here? The finals will be champ shit Vadim Nemkov against beast in overtime Corey Anderson. In the UFC, Yanni Blackjacks is about to defend his belt against Glover. I like how Glover is the one guy who gets one name here. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, how many Glovers do you know? I guess, yeah. One Glover, one Grover. That's all I know. Uh, John Jones is in jail or something. I don't know. I haven't been following that closely. See, I know two dudes named John Jones. So, like, uh, there you go. I need someone to cut through the crap here. Is the Bellator winner the best in the world? What say no. you, Ben, folks? No. Next question. No. What if uh, What if Yanni Blackjack lose to, loses to Glover Tashira? Well, then we got to do it again, brother, probably. But um, I don't, I mean, if Vadim Nemkov wins, then the the answer could be, well, maybe, and we'll probably never get a chance to find out in a timely fashion. But... I mean, it's kind of like the same problem to some extent that you have when Habib walks away with the belt and we're going, all right, who's the best lightweight in the world? And everybody is in the back of their heads going, well, Habib, if he wants to come back. And this, I think people, a lot of people feel in that same way about like John Jones. Like, well, if he wanted to put down the weights and uh, go back to light heavyweight, he'd probably be the best light heavyweight in the world. I mean, if Corey Anderson wins... Then I think you're going to hear a lot of the people just being like, mm, Corey Anderson wasn't even one of the top three light heavyweights in the UFC when he left. And now you're going to tell me, like, just because he, he beat some dudes in Bellator that he's the best light heavyweight in the world. People aren't going to buy it. If Vadim Nemkov, though, smashes him and retains his title and is like, look, 
I went through this whole tournament, put my belt up for grabs every single time. I'm still the champion. Then people go, okay, it has not been disproven yet. And it, therefore, it, it could be true. But you know how people are going to do you when you're the Bellator champion. Like, they're, they're going to always say, like, okay, but we wouldn't believe it unless we saw you fight and beat the current UFC champion. Yeah. Uh, Corey Anderson, maybe the biggest thing working against him is this uh, 2020 knockout loss to Jan Blahovich, even though those two guys are one and one since Corey Anderson had defeated Yanni Blackjacks way back at UFC 191 in 2015. But like assuming that that Blahovich continues to hold the title, kind of hard to make that case if Corey Anderson is to win the Bellator light heavyweight Grand Prix since he just lost to this dude, you know, two years ago. So that's that's kind of. That kind of hamstrings that argument as far as I'm concerned. But I think you're right about Vadim Nemkov, and he's just one of these dudes where it's kind of impossible to know uh, how good he actually is because, you know, he's over there on the island of misfit toys in Bellator. And it's a shame that we have to uh, have that caveat. I would love to sit here and tell you that just by virtue of being a Bellator champ, you could be considered the best in the world. But, you know, it's kind of the... uh, that's kind of the state of the world right now. It's kind of the state of affairs in MMA. If you're not over in the UFC fighting all these guys, like it's hard to know, just hard to know how good you are. Well, just wait though, until John Jones finally gets fired from the UFC for driving all the way through a supermarket, like just in the, in the front plate glass Mm -hmm. window and out the back into the loading dock. Uh, Then Bellator signs him. And then maybe Vadim Nemkov uh, puts it on him and then settles some of the debate for us. And John Don't Jones, act like that's not a shockingly plausible scenario. John Jones tweets and deletes. Funny how everyone jumps to these conclusions when I'm just trying to out be out buying milk for my babies. <laughs> it's weird how the only or like the least plausible part of that scenario I outlined is the UFC firing him for that. Yeah. <laughs> uh, next question this week comes to us from Doug Dixon, who writes, holy shit, did you guys see that kick in all caps at Cage Warriors? Sup with that kick, guys. Did you see this, Ben? Yeah. This is like, on first view, this thing looks like it could be like just a front leg uh, or lead leg front kick, I guess you'd call it. But then like you see the kind of different angles. And this thing, I don't even know what you call this. This It's like a, almost like a lead leg hook kick or something where this guy kind of, yeah, like the hook kicks this guy right in his face and knocks him out cold and cook cage where he's like, I've been watching these damn fights for a long time. I don't know that I've ever seen anybody kick anybody like that before. It's sneaky. Comes up uh, like under his vision where he can't really see it and not expecting it. Comes up, hits him in the chin. As I saw somebody, I can't remember who said it, but somebody, when they posted on Twitter, was like, oh, so we're we're throwing uppercuts as kicks now? <laughs> like Somebody figured out how to do that? But you know what? Like when I see stuff like that, I'm reminded this is one of the things that I really enjoy about MMA still even through all the bullshit that goes on outside of the actual action is how there's still so much room for creativity where you've, you've seen, you know, a thousand people knocked out in a thousand fights over the years. And still you can see some guy go in there and get creative and do something that you never even thought about before. You know, that can still happen. And it it reminds you like, okay, there's just, there's a lot of room to explore here Mm -hmm. still. I mean, I would like to go back in time with my time machine and just to just console all the karate guys that got their asses kicked in early UFCs <laughs> and just be like, hey, man, you might not believe this right now, since I know you got to go get stitches. But uh, <laughs> 20 years from now, people are going to be getting knocked out by that fucking bullshit that you teach the eight year olds 
at down at the dojo. Just yeah. keep the faith, man. Keep going. The time's going to come. Eventually, it's going to come back around for you. One of these days, you will break more than boards. We promise you. Next question this week comes to us from Amazing Larry. <laughs> okay. Well, who, all right. Who writes, uh, Ben Henderson fucked around and lost to Brent Primus. Uh, where where at the where you guys made it sound probably accurately like Bendo only jumped on this card as a favor to Bellator after they got his wife an easy win on the same show. So two questions: one, Ben Henderson has lost three in a row and is five and six since coming to Bellator. Please discourse. Number two, was Primus on to something when he called the upcoming vacant lightweight title fight between one of the Pitbull brothers? I love that we don't even figure out which one here. And Peter Queeley, a joke. Please discourse. Uh, ben, are you, what, what, what can be made of Benson Henderson now? I believe he's also at 37, 38 years old, something like that. And, uh, three in a row now has not been great in Bellator five and six, uh, loses this fight here to Brent Primus. Is it, is, have we seen the best of Benson Henderson? Is he, is he, is he making a, a move for the exit here? He's 37 and, you know, a lot of miles on the odometer for Benson Henderson and plus in one of those divisions where uh, people don't always age quite as well, you know, tough to to hang with some of those guys as you start to get a little older and in those divisions where everybody's a super athletic, fast guy who can do kind of everything. So I don't know, maybe we have seen the best of him. I remember back when he was UFC champion and he announced a plan to be done fighting pretty quickly. And then that plan changed as he got older, as often is the case. And I think that I wonder if he is ever thinking as these losses are kind of mounting up, hey, wasn't this kind of the exact scenario I was hoping to avoid when I was talking about how I had this point that I wanted to be done fighting at? Like, wasn't this the the exact sort of thing that I had seen other people go through that I didn't want to go through myself? And yet I could also see how once you're actually living it, you go, well, I can't stop now. I can't, I got, I got to go back out there and get a win, get this bad taste out of my mouth. But you, I mean, when they booked this one, you were talking about this one as, you know, a a deceptively tough fight for Benson Henderson. Yeah. I mean, Brent Primus is a good fighter, always has been over there in Bellator. And again, is one of these guys who kind of flies under the radar, radar, just because he's never been in the UFC. He's had pretty much his entire uh, career in Bellator. So he's another dude where it's like kind of impossible to know how good he is, but like, he, you know, you, you got this mounting evidence now that maybe he is, uh, he is actually a pretty good fighter. And, and when he makes this point about, uh, the, the vacant title fighter, you got one of the pit bulls has, has relinquished the, the lightweight title. So the Bellator is going to set up the other pit bull with a fight for the vacant title against Peter Queeley. Like, I don't know if I was Brent premise, I might look here and be like, maybe that is kind of a joke. Like maybe I should be involved in this. I don't know. Yeah, but don't you think Bellator is in that situation thinking like, oh, okay, we got to put the the belt on somebody once it's been vacated, but then we also have to have somewhere to go after that. Yeah. Like that's that's what I would guess that they're thinking is like, let's not just take everything we have and throw it right into the vacant title fight, like especially because you know how vacant titles can be. Sometimes it's, it's one thing to win one, but then it doesn't quite feel like that person is the champ right away. And so maybe they're thinking like, let's let our, let's give ourselves some flexibility for future plans here. Yeah. Uh, next question this week comes to us from Sweet D. Reynolds, who I believe is a character on It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia. Okay. She writes, UFC 269 is stacked. 
Obviously, the MMA gods will take some of these fights away from us, but still, what an incredible card. If they have this many good fights they can put on, why have they been feeding us scraps for so long? Why don't they just spread them out? Dom Cruz is halfway up the prelims. Couldn't his comeback be a main of fight night main event? Uh, so here's UFC uh, 269, Ben. You got uh, Charles Oliveira in the main event against Dustin Poirier. Been waiting for that one for a while. Dustin Poirier going to get his shot for the 155-pound title, the outright 155-pound title finally. Amanda Nunes going to defend the bantamweight belt against Juliana Pena. Leon Edwards against Jorge Masvidal. Kai Cara France against Cody Garbrandt, which will be a banger at flyweight. Uh, Rallyan Pavia and Sean O'Malley, which is another good one. And then, you know what? Sweet D is right here. You just keep going with these fights, even on the prelims. Jeff Neal versus Santiago Ponzinibbio. Dominic Cruz against Pedro Munoz. Uh, Macy Barber also on this thing. Ryan Hall against Derek Minner. Uh, it just kind of goes on and on. This is legitimately a very good card. And it does seem, frankly, like the UFC's strategy, to the extent that there is a strategy at this point, uh, is to kind of make these try to stack these big pay-per-view cards whenever you say two or three pay-per-views you're going to get a real stacked one uh and then some of the fight night events are going to be real thin that kind of seems like what we're doing now first of all we shouldn't even be talking about this that's true yeah no we're asking for trouble we're asking, asking. For, we're, we're fucking begging for it chad we this this card is in what december and we're going to sit around here now and start talking about how awesome it is. What? Why don't we just walk up to Mount Zions, uh, pull our pants down, and, and show our bare asses to the MMA gods and declare that there's not a goddamn thing they can do about it. Yeah, okay. It's, that, this is hubris to even be discussing how awesome this fight card is at this point. Fucking October. And I sit around here and talk about this. Man, there's so much time to completely fuck this thing up now and then that said i would argue isn't this kind of what we want though like for like if you had to choose given the sort of established principle at this point that the ufc is going to keep this breakneck schedule that the one thing they're not going to do is fewer events they're not going to axe those events off the calendar. They have to provide this content to ESPN. They, they have to keep this train rolling damn near every weekend. They're going to do that. If you take that as a given, that they are going to do that, and it's just a matter of how they apportion stuff out, wouldn't we rather have these fight nights turn into more and more sort of like, oh, it's on if you want to watch it. It's kind of missable, though. Uh, you know, you, you can catch up with it later. No problem. And then the pay-per-views, the stuff they're actually asking you to really get up for and to pay premium prices for, actually deliver the good stuff, not just one good fight at the top. Because again, they know how easily these fight cards can get fucked up. But a bunch of good fight cards, or a bunch of good fights on the card that make it, in the aggregate, a really good value. Like, isn't that what we have been saying that we want? In some ways, sure. Like, I, you know, leave the main card intact here. G give me that pay-per-view card and I'd be glad to pay for it. I do kind of feel like I would be more interested in some of these fight night cards if you had Jeff Neal versus Santiago Ponzinibbio or Dominic Cruz versus Pedro Munoz up top. Uh, it's not like you can do that all the time, but I don't know. Just like if you had a, like one or two more interesting fights on the average fight night card, it would seem more reasonable to spend my time watching it than some of these ones where you look at them and it's just like, all right, I'll watch the main event tomorrow. 
Yeah. I mean, the, the, there may be something to that. I also, though, think that for some of them, they might be thinking like, look, I need a fight that is going to seem like it adds value to this thing, but also that in a pinch could be moved up maybe even to main event status. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. there's not a whole lot of booking opportunities that seem like they fill both those needs. Yeah, that's a fair point. Uh, next question this week comes to us from Dan Algi- Algieri, Aligieri. So maybe the guy who wrote the the uh, the Divine Comedy. Is this Dante? Did we get this email from Dante? I, this, I assume this is Dante Alighieri. Yeah. Uh, he writes, Kamzat Chemaev fights Li Jingliang at UFC 267. After two canceled fights and briefly quitting MMA entirely with the lingering effects of COVID-19, A, are we and the unfortunately large anti-science contingent of the fan base, contingent of the fan base, about to see what can happen to even the fittest people around with this disease, or B, with Li Jingliang still going off at about plus 250, if you had $20 you never wanted to see again, dot, 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 question mark. Uh, Hmm. I mean, I hope that Kamzat Chemaev is is at 100% if he's coming back to fight. Obviously, in the fight game, you can never be sure of that. It seems like he has had some different pressures on him to return to the cage, if you know what I mean. Um, So we don't really have a guarantee that he's going to be 100%. But I would love to think that he is if he's coming back to fight someone as good as as Li Jingliang here. And so um, I don't know, but it's definitely going to be on all of our minds. Even if the UFC won't yep. mention it, we'll have to wait and see if they do or not. They typically don't mention that kind of stuff on the uh, on the broadcast, with one fairly notable exception here recently. But like, uh, yeah, we'll all be thinking about it, and I think we are all interested to see how Kamzat Chimaev looks because he's kind of been the highest profile guy to sort of really struggle with that disease, and and indeed seemed like it was going to end his career for a hot minute. So, uh, yeah, I want to I want to see how he looks in his comeback fight for sure. And if I had $20, I never wanted to see again. Would I think about putting it on Li Jingliang? Guess we'll have to wait and find out when that fight actually comes around. Yeah. I mean, if you were not all the way back and all the way ready, uh, that's the kind of guy who could find out because that guy, he can fight at a high pace and keep it up. He's got a little bit of power if you get caught by him. Uh, and just a tough dude. So like, I don't know if you're going to ever get an easy night of work against that guy. And if you aren't really ready to be there, if you're feeling a little rusty or your body doesn't feel 100% from uh, from being back from COVID, all that stuff, like man, you could fuck around and get in a tough night there. It, it does seem like, especially given everything that Kamsat Shemayev has been through, we're not trying too hard to ease him back into action here. Yeah, and then if he does lose, how will the UFC respond to it? Since, you know, they've been known to wash their hands a time or two before, or at least be like, oh, this kid, this kid couldn't cut it, or whatever. Well, then they've previously oh, oh. been very high on Kamzat Shemaya before the, this illness. Or will that be the one time when we feel like we do want to talk about COVID on a UFC broadcast? Maybe. Well, I guess I said, we'll have to wait and see here. You know, if no other reason than for my own education, and I honestly don't know how this would shake out, it would be kind of interesting to see a compilation of the win loss record of fighters who were returning for, from COVID like in the, in their first fight back after having COVID all of the fighters that we know of who are on the list over at bloody elbow, which I think is the one site that has a a more or less, more or less comprehensive list of fighters who have had COVID. It would be interesting to see what the win loss record is in the first fight back. I don't, I honestly don't know what it would be. Uh, Next question this week comes to us from 
Yuri Norstein, who he includes this, his own bio here, director of the twice recognized greatest animated film of all time, Tale of Tales, 1979. So thanks for Yuri for including his own Wikipedia page uh, here. The subject line said, is champion from another organization, MMAs from parts unknown. Uh, watching the Bellator card from the weekend, and I noticed one of my MMA pet peeves while talking about Benson Henderson, Josh Thompson mentioned that Henderson, quote, won belts in other organizations. So why can't he say UFC? If you're listening to UFC commentators talk about Ben Askren or Michael Chandler, they say the same thing, won belts in other organizations. Hell, listen to Chandler in interviews. He says the other organization when describing his time at Bellator. So what gives? Are broadcasters trying not to remind me that other MMA promotions exist? Or is it a matter of giving the athletes vague and mysterious origins? Uh, <laughs> I mean, hey, wait, oh, I, I would love if it was something as thoughtful as trying to give everybody vague and mysterious origins. Yeah, trying to make Michael Chandler sound like he is from Parts Unknown. I uh, don't know. He just showed up here with a big gold belt and we said, oh, I guess you must be good. Yeah. Uh, I mean, if we're going to ask this question, I feel like it is only right that you got to give Bellator the credit that it deserves that Bellator actually will mention the UFC on its broadcast. It has happened yeah. a bunch of times before. I don't know why it didn't happen this time. I don't know why Josh Thompson would. I mean, it's probably just a thing that happened without any planning or commentary on it. It's the UFC that won't largely mention the other organizations. And like we said just a minute ago, won't mention COVID-19. Like the UFC is pretty, uh, you know, well known for picking and choosing the kind of information that it wants to have on its broadcast and that it doesn't want to have on its broadcast up to and including just people's losses. If two fighters are going out there, the UFC will almost always be like, this guy has won three of his last five or something yeah. like that to not try to tell you that he's actually 0-2 uh, on a two-fight <laughs> yes. losing streak heading into this bout. So that's that's kind of a UFC thing, it seems like, to not let anybody else's branding get on your broadcast unless you want it to be there. Well, and it makes sense from the power disparity in the situation, right? Because for the UFC to be like, man, we bet there are always a bunch of people in our audience who have never heard of Bellator and don't think about it. And we don't want to invite them to check it out. We don't want to we don't want to send them off to Google being like, what is this Bellator that they keep mentioning on the UFC broadcast? There's no percentage in that, because if you were one of the MMA heads who knows you know what it means to be a Bellator champion then you already know when we say this guy is a champion from another organization you know which organization you probably followed his career over there so we don't have to tell you about it and if you don't know we don't want to fill you in we don't need to fill you in at that level of detail it doesn't help us but for Bellator to be able to say oh yeah we got a former UFC champion over here who's fighting here tonight well that might catch your attention if you're watching Bellator and it just happens to be on TV like in a bar or something like it, it makes sense why Bellator would would not shy away from saying the letters and the UFC would. Yeah. Uh, next question this week comes to us from Pat Milder, who writes, my wife and I go back and forth betting $1 on fights based purely on pre-walkout video vignettes. We usually end up picking correctly about 75% of the time. Uh, early prelims, prelims only. We're on the Eastern time zone. I end up at 5.30 a.m. every day. So yeah, I understand why you wouldn't want to stay till the bitter end uh this past weekend two of the fighters she picked uh lost in rounds one and two and then in round three pulled off a comeback finish is she a witch uh well, i can't help you with that one pat um but uh, have it's we better asked, just not piss her off just in case she is yeah he asks have we found the perfect betting system what do you think yes. Cole? How, how do you think you would do going in cold and picking fights just from the pre-fight hype Honestly, maybe better, better than my current system. It might uh, simplify things. Yeah, well, the problem is 
what am I going to do? Am I going to be sitting there on the Sportsbet Montana app waiting till the last minute after I see the video vignette before I go and place my bet? I'd say you're really putting yourself in a crunch timing-wise if you're actually doing like real like betting through some established system. Or the other, I mean, are you going to be down there at the Magic Diamond Casino watching the, the video vignettes, like maybe on your phone or something, like watching ESPN Plus on your phone with your, your money poised to go into the machine, the Sports Bet Montana machine? Yeah, I mean, I give, now that we're actually putting money on it, it does feel like I overthink it a lot of times, if I'm being perfectly honest. Like, probably I would do better if I just went out and put small bets on all the favorites. But what fun is that? What fun Wait, is that? did man? you just come up with a new system? <laughs> the new system. You better, you probably get killed on those UFC events, though, where there are a, a glut of upsets because your, your percentage isn't going to be too high on those bets. So it would be yeah. a numbers game. It would be an Ali Abdelaziz-style numbers game. So you'd have to make sure that you won more than you lost. Um, let's see here. We're up over an hour. And so, uh, uh, I think we should answer this one just because I feel like we can, uh, we can answer one pretty quickly. Uh, Nicholas Swallow writes subject line, um, BJ Penn for governor. Do you think the prodigy has what it takes to run Hawaii? Uh, yeah, Um, no, no, uh -uh. no, not even a little bit, not even a little bit. So that's uh that's that one taken care of. Check that one off the list. All right, Boom. I want to. We got this one from uh, Marcel that might function just as a lightning round because he writes some random random shit I've been thinking about for the last nine years. Hey guys, it's me, Marcel. Now that you're fully committed to just talking about stuff, I've got stuff I'd like to talk about. Oh, here, good. Okay. Here goes. Ben, I couldn't follow your book recommendation for the bone clocks. Did I eat too many gummies or not enough? You got to stay with that one. You got to stay with that one. Uh, it, it, it gets going kind of late. It's a long one. And maybe the gummies, I don't know, maybe the, maybe you're eating the wrong gummies. Let's yeah. say that. And then he writes, Chad, does Ben eat too many gummies? And I would say emphatically, yes. I mean, you can just tell from some of his recommendations, uh, movies and otherwise, that this guy, he's he's viewing life through an addled set of eyeballs over there. Hey, sometimes I use the mints. Okay. Now you got mints over there? Lower dosage in the mints. You've been holding out on me? You just want to maybe just take a nice, like, smooth out the afternoon a little bit without getting crazy. Uh, You know, the other night I was at a party and there was a guy there whose job is that he writes about legal weed. Like, he has a a newsletter, a sub stack, I believe, where he writes about legal weed. And he was like, I don't even like to to smoke or or do weed, but uh, I got so much marijuana at my house because people just send me all these free samples. He's like, I basically huh. have a dispensary over at my house. So uh, that might be a guy you, you're you interested in meeting because it seemed yeah. like he was trying to get rid of it. Where's that house? Yeah. See, now I'm just going to charge you a very reasonable finder's fee. Uh, let's see here. Ben, where's my koozie? Asks Marcel. It's in my garage. Come get it. Okay. <laughs> Chad, bad brains or minor threat and why? It's a great question. Uh, you know, m- for my own listening pleasure, I probably listened to minor threat more than I have listened to bad brains in my life, but bad brains like one of the great punk bands of all time. And maybe like the most technically adept live performance punk band of all time. You see a performance by bad brains, uh, even on a YouTube video from like 40 years ago or whatever. And those motherfuckers could straight up play. You would not want to share a bill 
I don't think you would be another band who shared a live bill with the Bad Brains back in the day uh, because they were just so good. Then he writes, congrats on the new jobs at The Athletic, you guys. They've well, gained some serious talent. <laughs> so some of these are that have been, they've been sitting around in notes for a while. I think he might be Norm McDonalding us right here. Like when he, uh, remember on when he showed up for like one of Conan <laughs> O'Brien's last shows and like gave him the, gave him like a fruit basket. And he was like, I actually got, bought you this when you got the job. And then he read the card that was like, Conan, congratulations on the gig. This is something they can never take away from you. I think like... <laughs> I think that's that's kind of what's going on here. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well done. Uh, let me see. I got a CME t-shirt and the logo was slightly left of center. Intentional. I don't going to take that up with Cotton Bureau. Uh, here's a recent conversation in my house while movie searching. My wife, who also listens to the show, says, hey, how about Legend? Isn't Tom Hardy one of your guys? Me. Yeah, he looks pretty good getting off the bus. Hashtag would watch. <laughs> my 12-year-old daughter you really should stop saying hashtag in front of everything. That's not how it works. <laughs> he says, thanks for the show. Peace out, homies. Thanks, Marcel, for writing in with some of your thoughts that you just had over the last nine years. You know what? As someone with an almost nine-year-old daughter who sometimes seems to think that she's my 12-year-old daughter, uh, that seems to be right around the wheelhouse in which uh, daughters of that around that age, they know everything you should do yeah. and what you should stop doing. Mm-hmm. frankly. Mm-hmm. And they are not shy about sharing it with you. Yeah. Just let them take the reins. That's what I say. Just like, all right, you know, you, you're running the show now. I'm going to go look at my tablet for the next four hours. Call me you when dinner is ready. Every once in a while, we end up aligned on an issue such as when I took them to a pumpkin patch farm this weekend and reading their list of like birds and stuff that they had on this farm. And they mentioned that they have a peacock who just wanders around the farm. And that peacock's name is Kevin. Oh, nice. And Good she, name. And she was like, well, we got to find Kevin. <laughs> we got to lay eyes on Kevin. And I was like, you know what? I'm 100% in agreement. Where, where's that fucker at? All right. That's going to do it. That is going to wrap it up for this week's Co-Main Event Podcast. Remember, we're over at the Patreon all week. Come on over. Sign up. Join the team. Patreon.com slash Co-Main Event. You won't regret it. And if you do, it's pretty easy to cancel. Uh, so coming up this weekend, we got, uh, Paulo Costa against Marvin Vittori over there on the UFC fight night. Is that this weekend, October 23rd? Man, has Marvin Vittori found out that Conor McGregor punched an Italian DJ? Well, he's going to be so pissed. He's not going to like it. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, yeah. Conor McGregor might want to make himself scarce for a while. Going out there attacking the culture. He's not going to have it, man. Yeah. Don't let Marvin Vittori find out he punched a guy who loves pizza. So that's, I'm on the pizza pie. Okay, all right. That's What's probably that? we gotta come to <laughs> cut you off right there. Uh, we'll just let's edit that part out. Yeah, I'll fix that in post. Anyway, thanks for listening, everybody. We'll be back next week or all week long over at the Patreon. As for right now, though, thanks for listening. We are done. We are through. We are out. Like Marmatory, somebody would be talking to him. He would lift up the headphones that would be playing the music of DJ Francesco Pensionetti, whatever his name is. Will share his location with me on my iPhone just so I can make sure that I am not where he is.
it's a pleasure and it's a pleasure of making 